Great. Welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for being here. My name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha. Very excited to have everyone back for the last session of our class, What is Halakha? The Fascinating History of an Essential Term with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zuckier. Uh, Rabbi Zuckier is a member of the Drisha faculty as well as a postdoctoral fellow in Jewish studies at McGill University. He received his PhD in ancient Judaism from Yale University and his smicha from Yeshiva University. He was also a member of Yeshiva University's Kola Elyon. Uh, he's previously served as the director of the Orthodox Union's Jewish Learning Initiative, Jewish Learning Initiative on campus at Yale University. Uh, is also an alumnus of Yeshiva Har Etzion, the Wexner and Tikva Fellowships. Uh, we're very excited to be. Uh, wrapping up this class together, which has been looking at the many meanings of the term halakha as they develop over time and to consider the ways in which those different meanings uh, say different things about the practice and the nature of halakha as a whole. This has been part of our spring focus at Drisha on halakha. We have run a number of different classes focusing on different aspects of halakha, whether it's practical halakha, theoretical aspects, philosophy of halakha. And uh, we are very excited to be rounding out this class as part of that. Our first two sessions focused on some definitions and different uses of the ways that we use the term to see what is possibly contained within it by some of the different contexts. Last week, we looked at the uh, linguistics and the potential places where the term itself, halakha, might come from different languages, different societal contexts. And uh, we're going to be continuing this week to uh, to round out the session. I'm going to be posting a copy of the source sheet in the chat, as well as on Facebook Live for folks who are following us there so that you can follow along, although I believe it will also be up on the screen uh, when the time comes. And uh, we'll mention this again in a little more detail at the end of the session, but I do want to note that this is the last of our spring classes this evening. Uh, starting next week, we have a number of pre-Pesach programs that we hope you'll consider joining us for, including a Yomi Yoon, a Sium for Tani Bechorot, an event on Tuesday night with a variety of people telling the Seder story in different original independent contexts. All of that information is on our website and we'll be talking more, in more detail about that at the end of the session. Uh, for now, I'm gonna turn it over to Rabbi Zuckier. All right, thank you very much, Michael. And uh, as you said, this is the third of three and uh, I'm, I'm sad it's coming to a close, but we have a lot to discuss today. Um, so if, uh, as Michael said, if in the last couple of, of uh, classes we talked about the range of the term halakha in rabbinic literature, uh, whether it means tradition or a broad oral Torah meaning or specifically practical halakha, to what degree practical was complicated. And then we talked about the origin of the term, um, you know, where it comes from in terms of, uh, does it have an Akkadian root? What biblical words does it, uh, Hebrew words does it relate to? And uh, does it appear in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Today, we're gonna move very squarely to the to the, uh, but we'll both be looking at the modern period and one specific question of how to apply the term. But really we're looking at a classic uh, question or a classic distinction between halakha and agada. And uh, halakha being generally translated as Jewish law, agada translated as uh, either lore, which is tricky if you have a, a Brooklyn accent, um, but uh, um, generally people tend to translate agada as anything that's not halakha. Right, it's not. It's not. Oh, it must be. Must be. I got it. That's everything else. That's not precisely uh, accurate, but that that more or less represents the way uh, people use the term. Um, um, yeah. So um, so we're going to be considering the question of the relationship between agada and halacha generally, and then we're going to look at one particular uh, one particular place where that comes up, especially. Uh, in, in the 20th century, a bit of a debate over how to use the term. So um, we'll start, and I'm gonna jump to, uh, to the share screen. So we'll make it a bit bigger first. We're gonna look at some of these, some of these sources we saw two weeks ago uh, on the lists of the different areas of Torah overall. So uh, the context is less, less uh, significant here, but more that people, certain people are excluded from studying Torah because of ritual impurity, but 
uh, once they become pure again, um, or, or certain people who don't have that limitation, are mutarin likrot v'torah binvim uviktuvim. They can study the Tanakh, right, the three parts of the Bible. L'shanot b'mishnah b'midrash palachot uv'agadot. They can study as well non-biblical materials of Mishnah, Midrash, Halacha, and Agada. And uh, presumably Mishnah, we know what that is, uh, right? The, the Mishnah, the corpus of Mishnah, Midrash, the, that, that's organized around the biblical text rather than freestanding. Halachot and Agadot, it's not exactly clear how they relate to the other sources, but presumably it's a additional legal material. And Agadot, again, either everything else or stories, right? Agadot, uh, actually timely, comes from the word Hagadot, which is like the Haggadah, right? The telling, the Haggadah, the telling of the, the telling of the story of uh, of leaving Egypt, and the telling of other stories as well. Other narrative materials uh, are Haggadot, which then becomes uh, pronounced Agadot because uh, some people don't like pronouncing Hayes. It's true in Israel today, also, right? You go to Yerushalayim, people uh, don't pronounce their Hayes, so Haggadot becomes Agadot. In any event, so that's that's you know part of your corpus. Or you look at another source. This is maybe a longer list of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, all the things that he studied. It's a long list. Mikra, Mishnah, as we said, Bible, Mishnah, Talmud, which is analysis of the Mishnah. Again, Halachot V'Agadot, legal and narrative materials, Diktukei Torah, Diktukei Sofrim, different grammatical aspects of understanding the Torah, and it scribes Kalim V'Chamurim, uh, arguments uh, from uh, Kalachomer, of uh, arguing from smaller to the greater. They wrote Shavot, comparisons between texts, Kufot, intercalation, gematriot, uh, uh, numerical interpretation, numerical, numerically based interpretations, etc. Conversations between angels and demons and uh, palm trees um, uh, and uh, various parables. These are all the things that he studied. But again, central among them is this duality of halachot v'agadot. And notice how agadot apparently doesn't encompass all of these other things, right? There, there are different genres or subgenres at least. So Agadot seems to, uh, even though it's often used in the general sense, it can be broken down into other things. But let's not dwell on that. Um, there's uh, this, the, the following source, source number three here, will not just tell us the different genres of Halakha and but will actually uh, instruct as to how one should relate to them. So look at this. Davar uh, Acher, another interpretation of the phrase, Kim Shamor Tishmerun, right? For if you uh, surely guard this Torah, and the repetitive language, Shamor Tishmerun, if guarding, you guard. Shematomar, Areni Lamed, Parsha, Kasha, Zakala, you might think, I'll study the complicated things. They're, they're more interesting, they're more challenging. I'll ignore the easier parts of Torah. Tamadomar, Kilodavar Rekumikem. It's not an empty thing from you. It's meaning it shouldn't be, you shouldn't see any part of Torah as empty. You shouldn't say this part of Torah is not worth studying because it's not challenging enough or not interesting enough. Sha'atem omrim reikonhu, right? You shouldn't say that. Rather, uh, it's rather your life. Torah is your life, meaning all aspects of Torah are worthy of study, are worthy of incorporating into your life. Shalotomar, lamaditi halachot, dayai, or dai. I've studied the law, that's sufficient. Don't say that. Hamudomar, mitzvah, ha-mitzvah, ko-ha-mitzvah, right? The next verse, ko-ha-mitzvah, Every commandment that God commands you, you should make sure to do. But the language is, it's a little repetitive. It doesn't just say mitzvah, commandment. It doesn't just say ha-mitzvah, the commandment. It says kol ha-mitzvah. Every or all of the commandment. So it's a, it's a triple language there. And therefore, we see from here, limod midrash halachot v'hagadot. Right there, you see the hagadot with the hey. Um, because of the triple language, mitzvah, ha-mitzvah. Kol HaMitzvah, you need to study three different things. Midrash, right, uh, exegesis, and studying the biblical text and, and deriving things from it. Halakot, uh, legal teachings. And Hagadot, these uh, other narrative teachings. V'cheinu Omer, similarly, it says, uh, A person does not live by bread alone. Ze Midrash, okay, that's Midrash. That's the bread, that's the, you know, biblical interpretation is the basics. Ki Rather, a person lives by what comes out of God's mouth, elu halachot v'hagadot. That includes somehow this dual uh, category of both halachot and hagadot. V'cheinu omer, v'cham b'ni, etc. Verse from, from Proverbs or Mishlei. The omer b'ni, v'cham 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 b'ni, v
this uh, symbiotic relationship between God and the person who studies God's word. But again, in both of these teachings, there's an emphasis that one should study halachot and hagadot. And uh, we shouldn't say, notice how, how the, the thing were, the, the point that we're, uh, that, that's being rejected here. You might say, I'll study halacha, but not agada. I'll study the legal materials. Who needs the rest? Right? Notice how it's not the other way around. No one's saying, I'll study the stories, the narratives, and what do I need the law for? Right? It seems pretty clear. Uh, again, this is uh, Sifrei. This is a rabbinic text from the third century CE. Right? Uh, it's very clear. Uh, traditional uh, Judaism has, uh, for, for millennia, been very much committed to halacha, to the law. So it's obvious if you're going to drop one of them, the one to drop is not halacha, of course, but a Haggadah. But this source tells us that uh, one shouldn't drop either of them. You need all of the above. You need halacha, you need Haggadah, you need Midrash as well. They're all necessary. Although you already start seeing there's a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of, of an implication that maybe someone might think that Haggadah is less necessary. And we're going to see how this plays itself out. But as I put it, treating halacha and Haggadah differently. And we don't see so much of this in the Talmud. Talmud usually, when it talks about, you know, Talmud has a lot of halakha, but also has a lot of agadah. And when it gives these general statements of what's included in the corpus of Torah, the different genres, they're both included there. There's no real privileging of halakha over agadah. But once you get to the Geonic period, post-Talmudic, all of a sudden, we find again and again the privileging of halakha over agadah. Let's look at a few examples of this. So first, Rav Haigon. One of the uh, one of the more famous go name, and he says someone asked him, What's the difference? What difference is there between the agadot, the stories, the narratives told in the Talmud, that we need to uh, remove the, the errors there, versus other other stories and traditions where we don't need to. If if a, if a tradition, the, the implication of this question is uh, a a narrative, a story. Right, a biblical, a, either a biblical narrative interpreted or a story about a rabbi or whatnot, if it's in the Talmud, it needs to make sense. And if there's a problem, you need to resolve it. Whereas if it doesn't appear in the Talmud, you can reject it. You can say it's not, this is not part of our canon. What exactly is the difference here? And you'll see the response in some ways rejects the question. So he says, Generally speaking, whatever is in the Talmud is clearer than what isn't there. And it's not, it's not I'm not sure if he's saying you know, it's uh, objectively clear or sort of uh, by definition, we stipulate that it must be clear and we have to figure it out. But even so, the fact that it's in the Talmud, notwithstanding, still, despite the fact that uh, we find, you know, the Talmud's very authoritative for all things, still, these stories that are in the Talmud, if they don't really make sense or if they seem that they're corrupted in one way or another, Let's say textually corrupted. Aimless mochalayam. You don't need to rely on them. You can just you can say so. It's a agadah. It doesn't really matter. It's not like a halacha is the implicit point. The klalhu ein somchim al agadah. We have a rule. We don't rely on agadah. It's not authoritative the way that halacha is authoritative. Obviously, if we can reinterpret the passage so it's more better explained. Of course, we're going to do that. But it's not absolutely, if you can't, that's not a problem. Right? Presumably, there's something there. The rabbis put it in the Talmud for some reason. So try to understand it, try to clarify it, try to reinterpret it if there's a problem. But at the end of the day, it's not, it's not really authoritative at the end of the day. If you can't find a way, right? it's not, it's, it's like something that's not halacha, meaning it's not halacha, it's not authoritative. There's no problem with waving away an Agadah that doesn't make sense. And of course, if it's not in the Talmud, then even less so. There's even less of an impetus to explain it. So it sounds like, it sounds, again, he's not totally saying that Agadot have no value. He's certainly not saying that. But what he is saying is an Agadah, a story you find in the Talmud, you can't really make much sense of it. It doesn't really have a clear message or lesson, or it seems problematic. You can just say, this is not authoritative. It's in the Talmud, sure. You know, we'll try to make sense of it if we can. If we can't, it's not authoritative, no issue, just wave it away. It's a pretty, uh, pretty extreme distinction here between this and halakha. Obviously, he doesn't even need to say. If you find the halakha and you can't quite understand it, um, too bad, right? It's halakha, it's binding. It's the Talmudic halakha. That's what, that's what uh, you know, Jewish life for the Goanim was all about, was following 
the Talmudic halacha as interpreted by the Gaonim. So this is already one very big difference between halacha and Agadah. And Rav Shri Ragon, another one of the more famous Gaonim, says similarly, regarding these stories, these narratives, um, so anything that anything we find, all these different interpretations from verses um, or uh, midrashic passages or agadot, whether meaning whether we're talking about stories or interpretations of biblical stories, all of these things, they're umdana. It's a it's a guess. It's an estimate. It's not precise. What the rabbis are telling us in agadot are it's not precise. We don't rely. Anagadah, same similar language to what Rav Haigon said. And also, they said, we don't study from the Agadot. Of course, that doesn't mean not to, that one shouldn't study them. But the point is, they're not authoritative. You can't, you can't study them uh, in the sense of deriving authoritative conclusions from them. Um, and I guess, I mean, I, you know, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not saying you shouldn't study. It's saying you shouldn't study from it, right? You shouldn't draw conclusions. Although the truth is, uh, there's, especially in the Gaonic period, there is less, it seems like there was less study of Agadot than Halachot, which makes some sense if you're thinking practically, right? You need to study the Halachot to know what to do. Just the Agadot, you don't need to study. They're not, there's no, there's no, they, you know, it's good to know them, but it's not like, what am I going to do at the Seder night? You need to study the Agadot. No, you need to study the Halachot for that. Um, and if you look in the Rif, the Rif came at the tail end of the Onik period, Rabbi uh, Fasi. So he basically, his main work is, is a uh, not, cliff notes is not the right term, but it's it's a it's a summary. He cuts out the most important, so to speak, parts of the Talmud, the you know the conclusions, the main teachings and conclusions, and he cuts out everything that's not necessary for getting those basic bottom line conclusions and understanding what's going on. So you have a back and forth, a shock of Ataria uh, between the rabbis. Well, how you know? I think we should believe this is prohibited because of this source. I think it should be permitted because of that source. They go back and forth. They bring multiple sources. He'll just cut that all out. And he'll say, this rabbi said it's permitted. This rabbi said it's prohibited. We rule it's permitted or something like that. So if you look in the Rith, he systematically cuts out Agadot from his, from his work because it's not necessary. And so his work and many people, instead of studying the Talmud for, out of the Talmud, would study the Talmud in the short form out of the Rith. So everyone who studied the Talmud out of the Rift just didn't have those Haggadot. Just a, a recent example for people who do Dafyomi um, is the a, a lot of the material on the Shadim, on the demons in, in the end of Shachim, if I recall, the Rift just leaves it out because it's not, it's not halakhically binding in his view. That's, like, that's not even obvious that that's not halakhically binding. But he's decided it's Agadah, it's not halakha, it's not pure halakha, and therefore it can be cut out. Um, yeah, so and then so back in Rafir Ravanachon Mayam, Mashimit Khazik Minasecha, Umina Mikranika Belmayam, the Ainso uh the Tikla Lagadot. So whatever we can, whatever things we can conclude from them, whatever makes sense to our mind, whatever makes sense from the biblical text, we should certainly take. But there's no real end to it. There's no real conclusion from it, and it's not really binding in that same way. And that's again, that's the uh, that's the view of the Gonim. Another related point, um, the whole question there's this teaching, apparent teaching about. How an Amaaretz can't eat meat. Someone who's not the knowledgeable in Torah can't eat meat because there's a certain worry about uh, how how the food is produced. Leaving all that aside, what is he? What does uh, what does uh, uh, I forgot which of the Gonim this was? It's in Shiva Gonim. His response him on the topic, and he says, "Ein elu divrei halachot isur ve'ater shetzrichim omar b'hen halacha o ena halacha." This is not the sort of thing, you know, a, a halachic issue, an issue of law. Where you need to decide, is it a halacha or not? Ella de mutar. These are all things within the realm of, of permitted. Or maybe I was wondering, maybe that's a, a, a copy of Sarah. Maybe it should be Musar, but fine. Uh, it's about the laws of how to live life. It's about how to comport yourself. It's not a real halachic thing. This is sort of uh, bashing the ameharats, the uneducated. And it's, you know, it's not really an essential passage and it's not really important and you don't determine a lot of conclusions about these things so again it, you know he doesn't use the word agada but essentially he's saying this is not halakha it's the rest it's something else and therefore we don't take these passages seriously in the continuation he says you know he he, per, he says there's no real prohibition for an amarats to eat um so again consistently we've seen throughout these geonic sources this idea that there's a privileging of halakha 
over Agadah. Agadah is not binding. It's not, it's, we don't really learn things from it. We don't need to make it, draw conclusions from it. And this is a, a common, or the, the common, the widespread view of the Geonim. We're gonna, in, a, in a minute, we're going to take a look at uh, some 19th and 20th century sources, uh, or even 18th century sources, and how they go, you know, they also privilege off over, over Agadah with slightly different directions. I'll take some questions now. I see someone sent me a uh, direct message question in the chat, so I'll just read that. How has the role of Agadot in our conception of halakha changed in recent decades with renewed serious study of Agadah in the Beit Midrash and academia? It's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know if you need to limit that question to recent decades, meaning there have been people, you look at the Maharsha uh, back uh, in the 16th or the 17th century, back you know a few centuries ago, he had, his commentary had two halves to it. He has the Chidushe Halachot, and he has the Chidushe Agadot. And he, I mean, I don't know if he has slightly more of one or the other, but he, he more or less uh, commits equal energy to the two. And there have been others who, uh, who have written works on the Agadot. So it's not, this is by no means, uh, it's by no, by no means across the board that everyone ignores Agadot in light of Halachot. I think it's, it's waxed and waned over time. Our, so the selection of sources we're going to look at today are people who privilege Halachot over Agadot, which, you know, that, that definitely is the mainstream view. Um, some people treated them equally. I don't know of many people who preferred the Agadah over the Halakha within traditional Judaism. Again, it's, it's sort of definitional. I mean, Halakha is it's sort of a core aspect of what it is to be a, a traditional Jew. So it's, it's hard to do away with that. Although you, I'm sure you can find some homiletical statement from someone saying, you know, the real idea is the story behind it or, or something to that effect. But, but say the mainstream, the mainstream range of views is from, uh, you know, equal significance to privileging but yeah, it's definitely a fair question, and I, I agree. Recent decades have seen a renewed study of Agadah. In, in some places, in Israel especially, Rav Cook was a major factor behind that, behind that renewal, and, and not only studying Agadah as well as Halakha, but also integrating them. And uh, I mean, if you think about it, you might say that all of Jewish philosophy or Hasidut or Kabbalah, you could say that that's, you know, that's Agadah as well. It, it's sort of not a helpful if you know it's not a helpful term if it includes everything, but if Agadah just means everything that's not halakha, there's there's often going to be something uh, else as part of one's realm of uh, of Jewish thought. So feel free to follow up and and or other questions. Uh, and if not, we'll jump right back in and uh, move from the Geonim about a thousand years forward to the end of the uh, of the second millennium, and we'll look at other other approaches that to one degree or another. Privilege halacha over Agadah. This is the No de Yehuda, one of the important halachists uh, of uh, really of, of uh, you know of of halacha throughout history. And there's sort of a back and forth with someone. Um, he says, "I'm actually going to talk to you, the room darki I mentioned in, in a previous letter that it's not my way to respond on agadic matters. I write on halacha. I don't really write on Agadah. That's just not what I do." You responded, you know, sir, his greatness, right? You responded and said all of these, uh, all of these great rabbis who wrote on Agadah, and I assume the Mar I, I didn't look at the other letter, but I assume the Marsha is among them, as was just said, right? There are many, many great rabbis who wrote on Agadah, and so his response is, without well, not going to read the whole thing, but jump to here. Um, he says, Aval. All I said is that I don't respond about them. Why do I not deal with Agadah? Because everything that the rabbis say about Agadah, everything outside of Halakha is skurim ustumim. It's absolutely closed and shut up. It's hard to understand. What do I know? I'm just, I'm just the no to be Yehuda. What do I know about Agadah? I don't understand it. And once you start trying to understand it, it's uh, it's infinite. You'll never finish. You'll never you'll never get the right answer. Right? I have communal responsibilities. I need to make decisions for people. I've practical issues. If I have to respond to practical issues, halakha is practical. Agadah is not practical. So both because it's hard and because it's not practical, I don't do it. Not that one shouldn't do it. There's a lot of wonderful people who do it. And it's great, but it's not it's not central to me. Right, so again, this is not, not a, a fundamental privileging of halakha over Agadah, but in practice, what it means is the great mind of the Nose of Yehuda is occupied, I don't know, maybe 90, 90%, 95%, he did have some place where he deals with it, but overwhelmingly occupied with halakha rather than Agadah. He even quotes 
uh, back and forth in the Talmud um, uh, between different uh, uh, between different Rishonim. And he says, Misayim Harashba, Shabbat Kushin Atosu Ha'emeturet said, Ela Shayim Yashvim B'Divrei Agada. The Rashba has a, you know, goes back and forth with Tosfat about a certain Talmudic discussion, leaving aside exactly what it is, actually uh, uh, Purim related, so it was timely. And it's, but he says, Ein mit yashvim We don't need to resolve Agadic issues. Even if you have a you know, question about how the Purim story worked out and uh, you know, whatnot, okay, so we didn't resolve it, that's okay. We don't know the answer about what exactly happened. There's no, there's no problem, it's not practical. So the Nozbi Huda for him, it's less of a principal distinction between the two and more just practically, you need to make, you need a number one, practically it's harder to study Agadah, less clear cut. Number two, you need to make practical decisions. That's what Halakha is about. Agadah, you know, uh, what was the nature of the marriage between Esther and Achashverosh? Okay, if you don't get the right answer, it's not such a big deal. Um, so that's another version of privileging one over the other. And now here, the Shut Lahoros uh, Nasan. Uh, from Rav Nassan Gestetner, who, who lived uh, 20th century into the 21st century uh, and, and uh, wrote this important work of response. In one of his introductions, he sort of goes through a bunch of different uh, earlier views, but uh, mostly 20th century views that also, or some, some earlier as well, 19th, 20th century, that privilege over Agadah as well. So let's take a look at this. And he says, he quotes the Sefer Nitzvot Olam, it says, right, The world stands for the Torah. What part of Torah? The practical Torah. The halacha, that which is practical, not the theoretical, not the Agadah. That's, that's real Torah. Real Torah, the most essential Torah is halacha. That's one. This is the Alter Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe. He quotes him as saying, he writes out at length um, about clarifying how to resolve halacha. And he says, the kol divrei Torah, uvifrat, dvar halacha, every part of Torah, and especially halacha, he nitzots me'ashchina, it's a spark of the, of the shchina, of the divine presence, shehihi dvar Hashem, that's God's word. God's word comes from the spark. Torah is uh, black fire and white fire, so it's all the same thing. It's an aspect of God, that's uh, all of Torah, words of Torah, but especially the halacha. And then, uh, the sefer emunah bitachon, Work on, on belief and theology by the Chazonish, uh, major 20th century Haredi uh, halachist and posek. He wrote, We'll play on words. He says, It's obligatory to emphasize the importance of the obligation of studying halacha, because of the few uh, scholars in our generation. And um, I'm not sure, but I, I think this was written, this is uh, post Holocaust, so I think that's what he's referring to there. There's, there's a, so, you know, so, so many, uh, there's a forsaken Beit Midrash internally. There aren't enough people doing it to make sure that people do it well. So we really need to emphasize studying halacha well. And what do people do instead? People come up, they make up all these ideas, these nice ideas that don't really matter. People have these new chidushim, a new and novel interpretation that have nothing to do with uh, what Moshe said at Sinai. They're not really part of Torah. It's nice, you know, not, and he says, I'm not blaming them for doing this. I understand why they're doing it. That's not really what it's about. The real, the real uh, central part of learning is figuring out what the halacha is, period. Not agadot and not even, not even creative interpretations of the halachot. It's just the practical Conclusions of a halachot. This is obviously an extreme, a more extreme view than what we've seen before from the Chazonish. And uh, for those who know a little bit, this is partially a polemic against the Brisker school of study, which is all about novel interpretations. And uh, it's actually, and actually, interestingly, the Lahoros Nasan here quotes both the Chazonish and then he quotes the Rukhain Balazin, who's you know sort of the uh, precursor of the Brisker approach. Um, on the same page as, as focusing on the importance of halacha. Interesting. So let's take a look at this. He says, Kolt filotai me'odi, me'odi, all my prayers from way back when, from as long as I've been around. I've always been praying to have one finish, one new, new uh, interpretation of the Gemara. That's correct. That's my greatest prayer. 
Right, so notice for the Chazanesh, it's not about novel interpretations. It's about getting the bottom line, straightforward answers. For Chaim Velashen, it's about getting a novel interpretation, but they're both about halakha. They're both about getting the basic halakha right. Uh, fine, he's a little poetic here. Um, uh, right, these piv, why do we have all these stories? These stories in the Talmud. They're these nice things, but he says they're not really anything of substance. They're not. He's using a parable. They're not. Uh, they're not. Uh, um, you can't do business with them, so to speak. They're not the sort of property that you can use to do business. They don't have any real function. The function is. To open, you know, you start with them to get you interested, to tie you in, to get you excited about the study. It's almost like the uh, the four spice, right? Agada is the is the little taste of something sweet, something nice, and then you do the real work. Then you have the the meat and potatoes, which is halacha. So again, all of these different sources, and I, I use this source because it brings them together nicely. All of these sources emphasize halacha over agada or even even uh, creative halacha or whatnot. But it's really at the end of the day, it's the halachic determinations. That are at the center of what Torah is, and this really sounds as ideological as possible, right? I mean, the variations among them, but um, right. If you really want to know what Torah really is, or what that spark of, of God's uh, presence really is, or what uh, what you should be praying for, as you know, as a Talmud scholar, at the end of the day, it's halakha rather than agada, rather than anything else. So, again, not that there aren't counter voices. There certainly are, and people who who encouraged studying. Agada alongside halacha equally, or maybe maybe a bit less, but uh, certainly that encourages it as well. There's a, a pretty strong set of views from the Gonim and jumping to the modern period as well that very much encourage halacha as the central area of study. We'll pause again for any further questions. Okay, Jason. Uh, I was just wondering, like, it, um, do you think like agada, you know, like it doesn't make a like a specific sot, like it doesn't come down with a definitive ruling. But do you think agada has the capability to set the tone for what religious life should sh or what Jewish life should look like? Uh, um, and like in that way, agada can actually have sort of more influence over halacha as opposed to like the simple shakla shakla bataria in the Talmud? Um, okay, great question. So I think, I think there's really a few different, you were raising a few different points there together. So one is, one is can, can Agada play a greater role in religious life generally? And I think the answer is it depends on the society and the culture. Um, I mean, you, you look at other religions that don't have halakha, so for them it's more or less all Agada, or mostly Agada. Right? There are some rituals and some basic standards of conduct, but um, you know, most religious texts, I think, Outside of Judaism, certainly most religious texts would you would categorize if you had to as agada rather than halakha. Um, so yeah, definitely it's possible for them to have a great impact. To what extent that exists in Judaism, it depends on which you know which which society you're talking about throughout history. I mean, I think uh, if you go to I don't know if you looked at the shtetl that the Nod Yehuda was the the rabbi of, um, and you said how much does agada relate to things? I don't know. Maybe maybe it would depend. Maybe for the elites. It was more halakha, and for the average person, the agadot were driving these. I don't know. It's an interesting question. You really have to look at it in each society. But certainly, um, among the among the uh, elites, among the literary elites, those who are writing within within these uh, traditional texts, halakha is is centered. To some extent, it depends, as we mentioned before, on how you define agadah. Like if you include philosophy and kabbalah and all those things in agadah, then you know, then you all of a sudden have a much broader uh, corpus. But if you think think Agada is you know more or less things that appear in the Talmud interpretations of biblical stories, rabbinic stories, offhand statements uh, about uh, how the world works, those seem to have had less uh, significantly less of an impact throughout Jewish history than than the halachot. You know because uh, I mean Jewish philosophy you can find Talmudic passages that relate to them, but a lot of Jewish philosophy has come not directly from the Talmud. Let's say for for the Rambam, it, a lot of it came from Greek philosophy, from uh, Aristotle, mediated through the Arabic translations that the, the Rambam was using. So uh, yeah, I think it depends on that. And then you also mentioned that question of whether Agadah affected halakha or affects halakha. And the answer is definitely yes. The extent to which that's true, it really depends. So uh, you know, I, I think uh, probably it, people would disagree on the extent to which and it, it affects it and the context in which it does that.
But yeah, uh, there's a few people that have even written on these different issues on how Alchan Agadah commingle and affect one another. There's a couple of uh, few academic or semi-academic works on that in recent years. Happy to give you references if you want. So yeah, I think the answer to everything you said is yes, uh, to a certain degree, and that varies widely. But uh, all, all good points all around. Uh, any other questions? Thank you for not giving me the vague answer. Well, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite specific, but it also wasn't vague, right? I gave you I, I told you all the places where there was fuzziness. So yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's jump back to the handout. And now, having done our our you know mini survey of of uh, at least some of the views on halakha and agada and how they relate, let's look at our our uh, test case, our test study, which is going to be as I called it in Agadah, that's called halakha. And we'll see what happens. It's, a little, it's gonna be a little uncomfortable, it's gonna be a little unusual. So, um, yeah, so this is the Sifrei Bamidbar, the uh, third century Tanaitic Midrash on Bamidbar that for whatever reason, jumps back to talk about the story of the interaction between Esav, it's actually it's Pesach related, the Derek but it jumps back and talks about the relationship between, or the, inter, the, the meeting between Yaakov and Esav. Um, it's talking about words with dots on them. So it says as follows, Kiyotubo, similar to what we said about what words with dots on them, it says, Vayishakehu, right? It says that Esau kissed Yaakov, Vayishakehu, Nakudala, but it has dots on the word Vayishakehu. What does it mean to have a dot on a word? Usually it means you should erase it or you shouldn't take it seriously. So how do we understand that? Nakudala, Shalom, Nishko, Bicholibo. First interpretation is, yeah, Esau kissed Yaakov when they met, right? They met on the road, they were going to have a fight and then they embrace Esav kissed Yaakov. So the truth is, you know, he kissed him. He, he was, you know, doing all the right things, but he didn't do it wholeheartedly. Deep down, he really wanted to, whatever, he still wanted to hurt Yaakov. He still was upset at him. Roshim ben Lucky ben ben Yochai Omer, a different view, that not that he, not that he uh, kissed him half-heartedly, but rather, what does Vayishakehu with dots on it mean? Halacha, halacha, right? It's a teaching. It's a halachic teaching. Vayadua, it's known, she'esav, we know that Esau hates Yaakov. Not only do we know it, we know it as a legal matter, apparently. Rather, the dots are on the word that shows there was some sort of miracle. This, you know, he, he kissed him and he even kissed him wholeheartedly, but it was only, it was only through some miracle. Really, he wanted to know, bite him or kill him or whatever it was, and it happened miraculously. But for our purposes, this line is most, that what's underlined here, is most significant. Roshim ben Yochai says it's a halacha, that it's known that Esav hates Yaakov. Now, that doesn't sound like a halacha usually, right? You're, you look in Shulchan Aruch, uh, right? You look at any code of Jewish law, there's not going to be a passage there saying Esav hates Yaakov. I don't even know what that would mean, right? What that, how does that work as law? Um, it's not, it's not uh, regulatory. There's no obligation tied to it. It's a fact about the world. This is classic Agadah, right? It's a biblical interpretation. It's telling you things about the world. It's not legal. So why do we use the word halakha here, number one? And of course, I'm sure people feel a little uncomfortable about this. What would, why would there be such a focus on Esav hating Yaakov? Um, and uh, you know, does, does the fact that it's called halakha mean more than just the biblical Esav hates the biblical Yaakov? Maybe it means something uh, more long-term than that. And uh, building on this, if you look at Rashi on the relevant verse, Vayishakehu, Nakura love Rashi, there's dots on the word. He quotes our, our Sifrei, the passage you just read. There's a debate. Some people say he didn't kiss him wholeheartedly. He adds the word he, but basically it's a quote of what we just read. It's a, it's a halacha, it's a teaching that it's known that Esav hates Yaakov. So he didn't really want to, to kiss him. He actually did kiss him wholeheartedly. Um, because he had mercy. It's a bit less of a miracle for Rashi here. But uh, presumably through this Rashi, Rashi, of course, uh, Rashi and Chumash, uh, very widely studied. And uh, this became a very popular, a very popular Midrash. And we're going to see people take it uh, pretty seriously as halacha, right? It's not just, it's not just a Midrash, it's a halacha even. So let's look at a couple of, uh, you know, uh, a couple centuries ago interpretations, let's say 19th, early 20th century interpretations. Alei Tamar, which is a commentary on the Yerushalmi of Gitin, sort of throws this in, in passing. And uh, Jason, hold your question. It's a good question. Um, so he says, 
there's a whole question about whether Agadah Disfach, right? The, the, that the uh, Yerushalmi there talks about Agadah Disfach, the story of the bush, uh, of the Sfach where the ram gets caught in. Um, in any event, he says, he says, uh, he quotes uh, uh, he says, Efshar de Agadah, the Kamar, love divrei Agadah Mamish, Elamashu Hugad Balpeh, that in that passage, it talks about Agada, but it sounds like it's actually a halachic issue. Maybe Agada doesn't mean literally Agada, it doesn't mean to the exclusion of halacha. Maybe Agada just means that which was told, and it was told to Moshe at, at Sinai, and therefore that's also halacha. So maybe Agada sometimes can mean halacha. And also it's possible. Sometimes you'll have halachas that are called Agada, Agada in this. Borrowed language. It was told. It was told over like this. Just like we have the opposite, that an agada can be called a halacha. Okay, he seems very pretty set on this. That he he's almost taking this for granted, right? We all know that an agada can be called a halacha, and even a halacha can be called an agada. There's a little bit of uh, you know bleeding between categories. You know, uh, imprecise use of the category. And he quotes our example, right? Halacha and another passage, it talks about halacha, but then it, it, it but then what, what appears is actually agada, and he, he has another proof, uh 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 Chayis, uh that he right quotes Maritchayas of, of the uh, uh different uh, uh scholar, uh, both traditional and the little academic, he's who writes, So some people conclude from our passage. Which appears to be agada, but it uses the word halacha. They say no, it's it's still an agada. It happens to use the word halacha, but don't draw too many conclusions from it. It's just uh, you know the terms are sometimes interchangeable. How common is that? Jason asked. How common is that? It's not terribly common. So hold that thought. But that's at least one way that people read that passage. Um, another another source, the Hamik Davar, Mitziv, uh, writes about this as well on on this verse in his biblical commentary, and he says. Um, um, he says, Vayivku, right? The uh, Yaakov and Esav embrace. Esav kisses Yaakov, and uh, and then they they cry, and uh, fine. And he says, Vayivku, they cry. Shnei Bachu, they both cry. Both they they had the mutual love for one another, right? They they had this reconciliation. Yaakov loves Esav just as Esav loves Yaakov at this point. and the same thing for all generations. Vishash Zera Esav. Right, just and the same thing in all generations. If for whatever reason, Esav's descendants and Esav, little background, Esav is Edom, uh, right? That's that's in the Bible already. Esav is associated with Edom. Edom is associated in rabbinic literature with Rome, the Roman Empire, and then also with Christianity, which came out of the Roman Empire. So. This what's true in this story of Yaakov and Esau having this embrace and mutual love is true also for all generations. And uh, that means that when the descendants of Esau decide to reconcile with Yaakov, then uh, we, we, can, we can like them too. Right, Rebbe, the great Talmudic uh, scholar, the redactor of the Mishnah, was friends with, uh, according to many Talmudic passages, with uh, the, the Roman uh, leader Antoninus. So we see there can be reconciliation. What's implicit here is that most of the time there isn't that reconciliation. There's there's uh, more opposition between the two. We're going to see other people talk about it more explicitly. But this idea that Esav and Yaakov doesn't just mean Esav and Yaakov, but is is speaking to larger uh, larger categories, right? Yaakov being the Jewish people th throughout history, and Esav being the Roman Empire and later all Christians throughout history is a theme that we're going to see more about in one moment. So, um, you know, again, this expands a little bit the scope, but what do you do with it? What does it mean? What does it mean that Yaakov and Esav, uh, according to the, our passage, have this halachic uh, tension with one another? So we'll look at now a passage of Rav Moshe Feinstein. I won't give background on where, how this tshuva, how this responsum came about, right? Rav Moshe is a book of responsa, although, as we'll see, sometimes it gets into things that are uh, a bit, uh, uh, could be qualified, clar uh, called agadot. But Rav Moshe Feinstein writes as follows. Right, the Rashi we just read, quoting the Midrash. Midrash Amr 
right? It's a halacha, it's a legal teaching. Esav hates Yaakov. The question is, what does that do with halacha? It's not a legal teaching. Uh, scroll down. So why, why you call it halacha? Just like halacha, the law can't change. Okay, maybe there's some exceptions, but fundamentally, law doesn't change. Similarly, Esav's hatred for Yaakov doesn't change. Even, and it sounds like he's talking not just about Edom, not just about Rome, not just about Christianity, but even all Gentiles, arguably, it sounds like he's saying something in that direction, even those who treat us well, who relate to us well, they have a deep-seated hatred. That's part of their essence. Right? It's part of this halacha. It's this absolute rule. And therefore, we have to be extra careful. We can't uh, provoke them. We can't cause any enmity because fundamentally, every Gentile hates every Jew. How does he know that? It's because of the word halacha. It's a legal teaching. It's not just Esau happened to dislike Yaakov. It's part of Esau's nature. And Esau represents maybe you know the Christian world, maybe the whole non-Jewish world. This is Rav Moshe's teaching, and many people I've heard I've heard people quote this Rav Moshe, and with you know as part of like a you know an, an extreme version of a culture of a, a clash of civilizations theory, right? Whatever, whatever, and you map it onto whatever you're talking about. You're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You're talking about Jews and non-Jews generally. People say, oh, it's Rav Moshe. It's a it's a Rashi and Chumash. It's a Medrash. There's this fundamental enmity. There's, uh, you know, non-Jews will always hate us. It doesn't matter. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to help them. We should always be opposed to them. People take it in this direction, drawing on this Rav Moshe. Now, one thing, one thing that uh, they don't necessarily appreciate is the context of the Rav Moshe here. So what's Rav Moshe talking about? We're not going to read this inside. But the, the question was, the, we'll just look at the header. Im mutar medina shoftim acheret. Is it, is it uh, permitted or yeah, is it permitted for uh, government ministers to sue other judges in a different in a different state? What's really going on here? The backstory is there was a group of uh, the the British schools, the British Jewish schools weren't getting funding from the government, or they weren't getting sufficient funding. And the question was, and this was in the seventies, the question was, should the Jewish community, uh, you know, sue the government for not uh, for you know for uh, unfair treatment comparing you know jewish schools to other parochial schools in england to try to get funding that was the question and Rav moshe's view was not to go forward with the lawsuit for the reason that we just read but the reason he said is there's this fundamental enmity and you should be very very careful before uh before uh you know suing someone before being litigious like that because it's likely to provoke Right, so I think context is very important here because generally the way people redeploy this Rav Moshe is precisely for the opposite purpose, right? To use it to say, oh, we need to fight the, you know, we need to fight against uh, Group X, or we need to, you know, we need we need to stand strong against them. Whereas Rav Moshe was precisely saying, because of this idea, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not uh, going to fully explain it. Presumably, it has something to do with uh, being only a couple of decades post Holocaust and whatnot, and having seen. A lot of horrific things, probably some in Russia as well, and, and probably anti-Semitism in the U.S. as well. But uh, this view is not being deployed to explain why why Jews should be opposed to non-Jews or fight them. It's precisely to not fight back, right? To sort of take a meek posture and with the hope that uh, you know that you'll avoid conflict. It's about avoiding conflict rather than undertaking conflict. So I think number one, people use this Rav Moshe, do it, uh, take it out of very much out of its original context about how, how Rav Moshe meant to use it. And furthermore, um, we find a very opposite position by, taken by uh, Rav, uh, Rav Henkin, who was the other, somewhat overshadowed by Rav Moshe, but the other great decisor, great American decisor of the 20th century. Um, and he writes, this, this is a part of his essay also, talking about um, how to avoid, how to avoid uh, anti-Semitism, which again, Things that uh, you know, things that I think were were uh, a, a more uh, you know are always relevant, but I think were were a, a more salient part of the discussion in the years uh, more directly following the Holocaust. And he writes, he says, one of the things that people do that's really terrible that actually leads 
to this. Avon Plili, the terrible thing, these people who are dripping these little, little ideas, they're chattering about it. Right? They quote that Rashi. They say that. And it's, it's forever. So I wasn't able to clarify when exactly he wrote this. It's published. Was published posthumously, but I don't know exactly when he wrote it and if he had seen the Rav Moshe or not. But he's responding to the idea in Rav Moshe Feinstein whether or not he, he had seen it written by Rav Moshe Feinstein. He says, Zenegad Haimet Benegad Chazal It's against the truth, it's against the rabbis, it's against the Bible. And he says, Esav, Esav Gufa, Lohaya Rasha Tamid. Esav himself wasn't always evil. Esav himself vacillated between, between more and less, uh, less observant or less good, less eth- more or less ethical over time. And certainly his descendants. And there are all these teachings he quotes from Chazal, who is, uh, who is honored, one who honors creations, all people. We should respect all people. We should uh, treat all people uh, well. And people who say these things are actually, you know, the broader context, which I didn't cite here. It's a lengthy piece or a longer piece. Um, actually, I have it uh, photocopy here. Um, the longer piece, he says that uh, this, you know, this is what one of the things that causes uh, causes anti-Semitism. For Jews to go around saying that uh, all non-Jews hate Jews, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So he came out very strongly against this interpretation, and presumably he rejected the idea that the fact that it says halakha means it's forever. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense as biblical interpretation. It doesn't make sense in terms of how to view the world. That's really pushback of a different sort, right? Again, not uh, first I, I, I uh, argue that Rav Moshe, the whole point of this is not to, uh, not to lead to people being more anti- Gentile, but precisely to avoid conflict. And uh, I think Rav Henkin would say, even, even so, what Rav Moshe said would, is, is not, would, not agreeable to him. Um, and I think, I don't know if this is, uh, I think some people, again, many, many people have deployed the Rav Moshe in, in ways that, uh, let, uh, let's say, uh, certainly Rav Henkin would see as counterproductive. Um, but here's an interesting piece. Uh, Dove Halbertal, who's uh, 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 currently a Haredi law professor, interesting, an interesting uh, character in Israel. So he says, Halacha Yisav Soneli Yaakov. Asma is an article, it's a halacha that Esau hates Yaakov. So what? It's not a big deal. It's true. We're not going to read it inside. He says, basically, it's true. Esau hates Yaakov. Esau hates Yaakov. What that means is people only care about their own. There's no, no Jews, you know, Jews only care about Jews. Non-Jews only care about non-Jews. There's no reason to assume that any non-Jew cares about a Jew in any fundamental way. We have to work with them. We should work with them. We should treat them well. But, uh, you know, don't assume that there's any deep bond there. That's his take. And he quotes, um, he quotes, uh, where is this? Um, Rav Shach, he quotes all the, all the Haredi Dolem of the previous generation. They, Rav Shach predeceased this article. But um, his argument is, you know, you know essentially uh, a political, a politi- everyone, everyone, uh, Everyone takes care of their own. There are no deeper connections than that. That's the whole teaching here. There's nothing beyond that. And this shouldn't dictate our, our politics. And this shouldn't be a central teaching. Really, we should just treat everyone well. And this shouldn't, we shouldn't use this. So I, I found that interesting because um, you know, even this is a take of even people who accept the principle of Halakha Esav Soneli Yaakov, Esav hates Yaakov still are, are, are trying to play it down as well. He says the Ramam says that. Uh, that uh, a Gentile who who follows the seven Noah laws goes gets uh, you know goes to heaven is a good is a good person. So he's trying to minimize it, interestingly, um, while also accepting it at face value. So that's that's another interesting angle that some take with it. But I think maybe uh, the the so certainly the most convincing angle to take, um, and one that I think ties into our question of halacha versus agadah the most, it appears in an article by uh, Rav Eliyahu Shochemin, also a law professor. And his article is about halakha she'ena halakha, right? Things that are called halakha, but actually aren't. And uh, one of his sections is on our very topic, halakha biyadua she'esav soneli Yaakov. And we're not going to read this inside either, but he basically, he reads, he reads the passage and he talks about how people understand it. And what his, what his point is, his main point on this section is, if you look at the parallel text in, in the... Uh, I forget which parallel midrash it is, um, the Yalkut Shimoni, I think, which has, has the same passage, except it says something slightly different. Here, we'll read it right here. He kissed me, he didn't kiss him wholeheartedly. Is it not known 
that Esav hates Yaakov. Now notice the difference. It doesn't say halacha, it says vahalo. And if you think about it, the word halo versus the word halacha, it's very, very similar. Just basically a cuff is missing. You take out the cuff, you stick in a cuff, you have the word halacha spelled with an aleph at the end as it's sometimes spelled. Or maybe it was a cuff hey. And he suggests, I think very convincingly, and others, uh, you know, if you look in, in the most, uh, the most uh, scientific, up-to-date edition of the Midrash Halakha, they, they change this as well. It seems that, that this is what happened. The original text was the halo. Is it not known that Esav hates Yaakov rather than Halakha? It would be extremely unusual to say that there is Halakha, both for reasons of, of syntax and grammar. The, the grammar is odd. We didn't get into that. But also, as we said, Halakha is Halakha. It's very unusual for there to be this crossover. And uh, that's the argument of Shochem in this and other cases. He finds a few cases where it says the term halacha, where it doesn't, it seems to be talking about halacha. And in each case, he says either it's a textual, a textual error uh, of transmission of some sort, or the, the term is not being used literally. Um, but he says, right, the word halo uh, became halacha. And this is all just a story of an incorrect textual transmission. Really, uh, an interesting way. To, uh, to get out of this. But it's not, you know, this is not apologetics. Um, this actually makes a lot of sense in terms of what halakha means. As we spoke about, halakha is law. This idea, Esav Shani Yaakov, is the furthest thing from halakha. So among the different responses, we'll just quickly survey the different responses to the idea that, um, the idea that halakha is, uh, that, uh, that um, right, that halakha, Esav Shani Yaakov, the different approaches, some are to say, yeah, there's a little fuzziness. Halakha sometimes means agada. Some take a strong stance and say that this is, halakha means that it's forever true. You know, there's the Esav hating Yaakov will be true for Esav and all his descendants and can be unchanged. And different ways of deploying that um, to different ends, to uh, pacifism or, uh, or to, to fighting back. And then some reject that and say, no, that's not what halakha means. It's not true. You can't possibly say that it's uh, forever true that, that Esav and, and all his descendants hate the Jews. Even Esav didn't always hate Yaakov. Uh, and it really depended on, on what time you're talking about. And, uh, and we saw people who accepted it and played it down a little bit. But finally, and most, uh, most convincingly, and uh, obviously resolving any, any uh, you know, uh, moral issue one might have, is it's just a question that, hello, Esav, doesn't Esav hate Yaakov? And if so, why is he kissing him? And the answer is, he was overcome by mercy. Right? Another problem that solves is, the, for, for the Rav Moshe Feinstein reading, you have this strong formulation of halakha. It's unchanged that Esau hates Yaakov. And then the literal next words are, except on that day when he kissed him. And apparently he did like, right? So it, it doesn't really, even in terms of content, there's an internal conflict there that this resolves as well. It's not halakha biyadu, it's halo biyadua. And uh, getting back to Jason's question, is this the only time a midrash is called halakha? It's not the only, but it's one of uh, a very small number. And this one is actually not, right? It's, it's uh, <laughs> we should cross it off the list because it seems to actually have been a textual error. So um, I think it was, this was an interesting survey. We're gonna take questions now. But I think one thing we saw, um, one thing we saw in the range of responses, and obviously we didn't get all of them, all the interpretations, but um, some people say the fact that you call an Agadah halakha makes it stronger somehow. Some wish, wipe away the difference and some say, no, there still is a strong difference between halakha and Agadah. And this text actually uh, doesn't say uh, doesn't say uh, halakha, it just says hello, biadua, and that, that solved the problem as well. So happy to take questions. Hopefully we've learned a little bit about the relative uh, weight of halakha and agadah throughout Jewish tradition and through this uh, very interesting test case, different ways of, of uh, resolving this anomaly where halakha sounds like, uh, where something sounds like uh, it's called a halakha apparently, but really is an agadah. Okay, um, so questions if there are any. Could, um, could it... Like, I remember in the first session, we talked about how halakha indicates something that's, like, passed down. And, like, like that's, like, halakha, as opposed to the word din, right, halakha means something passed down, like a mm -hmm. Masoretic uh, tradition. Um, mm -hmm. couldn't, couldn't halakha in the context of the Midrash make a little bit more sense, particularly if, like, if you like if it like if it was passed down from teacher to student teacher to student that 
the um, that this is the interpretation, like this is the interpretation of Asav and Yaakov's relationship. Like, yeah. so that, yeah, that's a fair question. And actually, I think in, in the Shochemin article, he mentions some in some of the cases, I don't think in this case, but in some of the other cases where something's called a halakha, but it's actually an agadah, some people say, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's called a halakha because it's a tradition. It doesn't mean that it's law as opposed to narrative. It means it's uh, it's a tradition that people had that happens to be about narrative. So yes, that is a possible resolution. Um, again, in, in this case, it seems like we have a better one, um, but I'd say it's a it would be a, a, a bit of a weak argument because you know, it's it's not so common to see the word halakha used as just relating to traditions as opposed to legal traditions. It's less common. And uh, I think it's more in earlier texts. And this is, well, I guess this could be, uh, and it's right, I guess it is it is earlier as well. But usually you find it, you know, like talking about people, like this rabbi passed on this tradition or this rabbi brought this halakha as opposed to just saying this is a halakha. So I, I think it would be a bit unusual to apply here, but uh, some have suggested it in, in parallel context, so it could be. Thank you. Any other questions or comments or thoughts on, on any of the sessions? I guess we can uh, we can go as as Jason did. We can go back for those who uh, were repeat attenders. Thank you very much. I really really appreciated this because that they hope this business. I mean, I only learned it the one way, halacha, and I immediately pushed back. I thought it was stupid. You can't legislate feelings. I mean, that's just, I just always did not like this, but now I, I feel much better about it. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah. Who, would know, who knew that textual error would be so comforting? Um, okay, well, if there's no other, oh yeah, Miriam, go ahead. Thanks. Um, I, uh, I have a question that I might have a little difficulty formulating, but um, what I'm wondering about is, uh, I, I think something that you were tracing was a change in the trends about how this troubling verse is interpreted. Um, that there were, like at one point we had one problem and we interpreted it in a certain way to try to resolve that problem. And then another, at other times we had different problems and we tried to, to interpret it in a different way to solve the different problems. Um, and uh, in um, in other discussions, I've I've heard the uh, the preferences for how you interpret something is referred to as an ethos. Um, but I, I suppose if everything that isn't law is agada, then the ethos is also agada. Is it like a meta agada? Like what would you call that? I guess is my question. Yeah. So there's there's different terminologies that different people have proposed. Um, so if you move like to the broader legal context, so uh, Robert Cover has an es essay, Nomos and Narrative, where he talks about, you know, about framing narratives. Uh, you know, you have these stories that frame your legal culture. So let's say accepting the Torah at Sinai is the Jewish version of that. Um, and so he, he, I think he, he uses other terminology too, but he uses narrative in this sense, right? Narrative, which would be more or less Agadah, is is uh, a large part of what frames your legal system and, and defines your culture. Um, so that's one, that's one term that can be used. Another term, um, uh, Isidore, Professor Isidore Tversky used the term meta-halakha, which has been used in different ways by different people. But he, he, I was sort of referring to his argument before that he says everyone throughout Jewish history always has something besides halakha, right? meta being like, you know, after or beyond or, some, you know, you have, everyone has halakha, uh, you know, all, all traditional Jewish approaches. And then, and then you also have your meta halakha, whether that's philosophy, whether that's Kabbalah, whatever it is, that, or chassidut, there's going to be, there's got to be something else. Um, because you can't have an ethos on just halakha. But I don't know if that's fully true. I mean, it depends what you mean by everyone. But like, you go to, you look at certain, uh, I don't know, like, it's like a, a Litvish yeshiva culture. They'll, they'll say, you know, we just do halakha. We don't do anything else. We're just, and of course, if that's not, Fully true. Of course, there is an ethos there as well, um, but it's a little harder to trace. Um, you know, the less, the less explicit about it, it's more baked in. So I think it may also depend on on the culture um, how you find it. But yeah, I think the term ethos you mentioned works. I think you know, talking about narrative or framing narratives, um, and I think talking about uh, metahalacha. I think those are all terms that have been used, and there probably are others as well. Um, but there's not there's not a huge literature. On, on this uh, on this point, a lot of some people engage with cover and then try to say, how would you apply Robert Cover to 
you know, to Jewish legal tradition. Um, so yeah, there's more, there's, I think people are working on these things now and there's more to be uh, in, in the process of being written, I think. Okay, uh, any final questions? Uh, and if not, Michael, tell Great. us the coming well, attractions. First of all, thank you again, Rabbi Zakir, for uh, this really great session, this really great series. Uh, it's really been a pleasure for everyone to be able to come and learn together. Um, I want to make sure that folks know about some of our upcoming programs. So within the next week or so, that includes a few different things that we are doing to get ready for Pesach. Uh, on Sunday from 1130 to 1.30, we have a Yom Iyun on Seder and Sacrifice, Pesach in the historical perspective, Pesach in historical perspective. Uh, we've got two sessions. We have Adoption or Resistance, the Structure of the Seder and the Greco-Roman Symposium with Dr. Yair Furstenberg at 11.30 Eastern, and Remembering the Korban Pesach in Masach Pesachim and in Ancient Jewish Sources with Yadida Koren at 12.30. Uh, coming up after that on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock, we have an event called Seder Telling. Uh, before the standardization of the Haggadah, it used to be uh, people's practice for uh, the folks at a Seder to retell the Pesach story in their own words. There wasn't necessarily a script. It was a more interpretive act. So we are going to be calling on that tradition with four different storytellers from the Jewish world uh, who are going to be recounting the tale of Pesach and its meaning in their own words, uh, creative and collaborative endeavor. Again, that's Tuesday night. And then finally on Thursday morning at 8 a.m., we have a Tani Bukhorot Siyam with Rabbi Leia Sarna. So for anyone who is interested in hearing a Siyam on Masach Psachim, whether that's because uh, you're looking for a Siyam or because you have been studying Masach Psachim or just to get some extra early morning pre-Pesach, very timely, relevant Torah on Masach Psachim, uh, it's a great opportunity to learn with Rabbi Sarna. And then, uh, after Pesach, we will be starting our uh, Sphira classes later in the spring. Uh, the theme of those is Perspectives on Plague. We have eight new classes that are scheduled to happen between Pesach and Shavuot. And uh, you can check out information about all of those at our website at drisha.org classes. Uh, and I would also just like to make a quick plug that earlier today, all of you should have gotten an email from Drisha with a feedback survey for uh, this class, as well as if you've been taking other classes throughout the past few months. We rely really strongly on those surveys in order to make sure that we are offering people uh, top quality, relevant, engaging classes. Any feedback that you're able to give us will be very, very appreciated. So please take five minutes or so to fill that out when you have a chance. Um, and uh, if you have any questions about our upcoming classes, please feel free to email me, uh, fraud at drisha.org. And again, thank you so much to Rabbi Zuckier. Thank you to all of you for being here. And a Chag Hasher Sameach.